Wednesday morning. Time to be visited by one of the attorneys from the Prue Law Group at 720 Main Street, Willimantic. And we have Evelina Ruskowski today to talk about probate again. We've been doing these two-part programs in 2020. So she was here two weeks ago opening up the topic of probate, and she's back for part two. Where are we going today, Evelina? Well, it's. I wanted just to kind of recap of what we did last week of what probate was, um, and ultimately what we, you know, we discussed a large estate, what the process is, uh, but probate in a big picture is technically transferring ownership of a solely owned asset to a beneficiary, um, but there's a distinguish, there's a difference between probate administration, so when people refer to probate, it's you're probating a will, okay, it's a process uh, that when a decedent dies with a will. Um, and that um, uh, process establishes the, you know, the validity of the will. The, um, it appoints an executor, uh, administers the estate accordance to the will, um, and it kind of allows the court to oversee uh, the estate settlement process. Administration is very similar, but with administration, um, and they kind and like I said, they go hand in hand. A lot of people say probate, but sometimes it is just administration. Is when a decedent dies without a will. So the court has more oversight as to what it's doing. Um, so if there's a real estate, you have to get permission from the court to sell the real estate. You might need a bond. Um, an administrator is appointed instead of an executor. So there's little nuances, but the process is pretty much the same. It's just transferring ownership of a solely owned asset to um, a beneficiary designated um, you know, under the bill or in laws of intestacy. Then that's the word I want to have you expound upon. What is intestacy, and what does it mean as far as the Connecticut laws? So laws of intestacy is when you die without a will. So as you know, when you, you know, hopefully a lot of people have their wills <laughs> done. If not, come see us upstairs. But um, uh, when you don't have a will, the laws, a statute of Connecticut applies. And just, you know, a reminder, each state is different. So um, the laws of intestacy in Connecticut could be different in Rhode Island versus Massachusetts. They could be very similar, but there could be some nuances. So um, there's different stages. Um, so that let's say, you know, someone passes away and there's a spouse and children. So ultimately, the spouse will get the first 100000 um, and then she will get the uh, first um, 100000 and then the half of the balance, and the children will get the remainder equally. So if there's three children, we'll get split three ways, vice versa, like that, okay? When there is a decedent that has a surviving spouse, but the children are not of that surviving spouse, it gets split 50-50. So those are the little, you know, nuances. If there's no children, but there's a surviving spouse and parents, um, then the spouse gets the first hundred plus uh, three quarters of the balance, and the parents get the remainder one fourth. Does the state you die in make a difference, or if you die in another state, are you still bound by your home state's laws? Yes. Yeah, so it's where you, it's your residency. Okay. So you could let's say you could be traveling, and you know. Something happens to you in Rhode Island. Ultimately, you're still probating in Connecticut because that's your residency. That's your domicile. It's where you you have been living. That's what establishes where you ultimately want to uh, file probate. Uh, however, you know sometimes people move, but they still have 
maybe property or other things here in Connecticut. So let's say I moved, I moved to Maine, you know, and um, I pass away in Maine. Ultimately, you know, I have a house there. I'll probate in Maine. But at that point, you will want to do an ancillary probate in Connecticut because you need to still probate some of those other remaining items potentially in Connecticut. Um, so that still requires probate. Well, I have snowbird friends who spend half the year in Florida and half the year here, but they spend one more day in Florida so they pay cheaper taxes mm -hmm. down there. Mm -hmm. How does that affect probate and what happens if you die? Well, that, and like I said, it's ultimately where your mostly your residency is, but it also mostly establishes where your assets, okay? So, um, you know, if they have assets both in Florida and Connecticut, well, guess what? You're pro probating in, in both, but one will be your dominant, um, uh, uh, you know, ultimately maybe where you spend more time. So, if, you know, if you are spending more time in Florida, Florida would be most likely your, you know, uh, large estate where you open up your normal estate and then probably file an ancillary in, in Connecticut. So if you're staying one more day in Connecticut, meaning 300, well, 180, whatever the math <laughs> yeah, is yes, on yeah. it, uh, just to avoid the tax liabilities up here, then that would mean that it's Florida in control of your of your probate case. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Simple as that. Yeah. All right. And are there different levels of probate? Well, yes. So uh, I think last week we talked, we talked about a large estate. So that's anything um, over $40,000 in real estate. But the other levels are, like I just said, it's the ancillary probate. And that's when the non-Connecticut resident dies leaving some property in Connecticut. Um, there's the small estate, which we uh, refer to as affidavit in lieu. And that's assets that do not exceed the $40,000 um, and also does not include real property. That's important because there are some cases where I have there's real property, let's say there's land, um, and it's less than 40k. You still have to do a large estate because it's real property. Okay, so that's the little caveat. Um, like I said, we, large estates we covered. Then there is something called uh, TPO, which is tax purposes only, uh, and that's the taxable transfer of decedent's assets. That does not include pro the probate process, and a lot of the times that is when um, everything is joint between, you know, a spouse uh, and you have a house that is in survivorship, but you still need to take, you know, uh, the spouse's name, surviving spouse's name, uh, or decedent spouse, uh, decedent's name off. Um, so the surviving spouse can, you know, potentially either want to sell it, quick claim it to somewhere else. So that would be a tax purposes only filing. Um, and those are, the tax purposes only takes about three to four months roughly a little bit less same thing with a small estate takes about three to four months um, and then the large estate takes nine to you know nine to twelve months it could even be longer um, um, and then one other one is a temporary administrator um, and that usually happens when you know someone files an application with the core for either appointment of administrator or an executor but there's something wrong with you know someone challenges something but let's say there is a house and it's winter and someone needs to protect the assets, um, you know, put a lock on the house, do whatever. Sometimes the court will uh, grant a temporary administrator to do something just to preserve the assets uh, until the time that an official executor administrator is appointed for the estate. So talk me through some of these filings here. What, what, what is needed as far as filing is concerned? Um, for the most part, everything is pretty standard. Um, there's a, you know, if you go on the probate um, 
uh, website you see all the forms but pretty much to start it off you'll need that petition so if either it's for a larger state or a small estate uh, you know the petition is different so you're basically petitioning the court um, you know to either admit the will or appoint an administrator um, you will need um, a certified death certificate so that's important. You will need a funeral bill showing that you know the funeral bill has been paid or will be paid. Um, clearly, a will if if you need that. Um, so those are the things that you need to start off um, that the court requires. Um, um, and at that point, you know, once the court has it, um, all the courts now have transferred to um, e-filing, e which has been a little bit of a challenge. Um, we were in a test run program which was great for us because we kind of learned all the ins and outs but um, um, it's it's definitely learning curve for everybody else um, but I think it's a lot easier because everything is now submitted online and we get the results a lot quicker you know it's funny Evelina you referred to the uh, certified death certificate and I've gone through this with my mom from 2013 and I'm still having to provide that from time to time when someone comes to you after a family member or friend dies how many of those do you recommend that you get original copies of? Some, by the way, some of the ones I've had a supply, they just take a photocopy or fax, but some of them need the original, original certified yep. death mm -hmm. certificate. They they play hardball with that. Yes, yes. And it's it it's not the thing is they're twenty dollars a pop. They're expensive. So, you know, it's 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 not an easy it's it's not cheap, I, I guess I should say. But well, that's one reason I asked because yeah. I want to know what the what would you normally recommend the number should be done? Because you don't want to get extras that you're not going to need and right. pay you 20 right. bucks a pop, right. but you also don't want to do two right. of them when you need three. Right. So, we typically do ask for so for the most part everyone always gets 5 and I think that's a good solid number because you might need more. Because um, it, it depends on what kind of assets the decedent had where, like I said, we will, so someone comes in, they have five, I always have them keep at least one for themselves and I'll take the four. Um, when I send out requests, I try to always use a copy, you know, so I kind of try to go that route because ultimately once they're gone, if I need to get more, then, you know, it, it's, mo it's more money. Uh, but like you said, certain facilities want the original, and we'll have to send it out. So, um, you know, a lot of the insurance companies want a, a, an original. Sometimes certain banks want the original, or if um, they want to at least see the original. So if, you know, if I'm asking a fiduciary to close out, an estate, uh, close out a bank account, I say it's better for them to just go to the bank account, uh, the, the bank, to close it out. Um, it's a lot quicker. So I said bring the certified death certificate. They will, they will make a copy of it, but at least they will see it, and they can verify it was an original. Um, so, th you know, there's ways to kind of preserve the five that you have, but it's not always the case. But I always definitely ask for the five. Right, and on top of that, when you're being asked to provide <laughs> it, first question I'd say does it have to be the original, or can it be a photocopy? Mm -hmm. Can I fax it and all that? Right. And I just had to do that two weeks ago with yeah. an investment company, yeah. and they just said, yeah, the copy's fine. We don't right. need the original, right. which is good, because I'm down to my last one. Exactly. They ain't getting it. Right. And, by, and by the way, some of the ones that you send it to say they will send it back to you. So it isn't like you give it up forever. Yes, but a lot of times it doesn't always happen. Yes, some will, absolutely, but some won't. Um, you know, so it's one of those things of definitely follow through. And uh, honestly, a lot of times when the paperwork comes in, you know, what 
I maybe need to submit for whatever reason, they'll say, they will, it will state on the form, a photocopy is sufficient. Sometimes, you know, a good point for everyone is using a pencil and kind of shading the certified emblem just to show that it was actually a certified copy. That's helpful, um, you know, so... You mean actually write on the original copy? It, it's use a pencil and kind of just shade in the, you know, the embossed certified stamp. And then when you make a photocopy of it, it will pop out on the photocopy. Who can petition to open an estate? So that's a great question because not everyone can, but ultimately you have to have legal interest. Um, and that could be an executor, um, uh, a party designated in the will, um, the heirs at law, so exactly a spouse, children, um, creditor. So anyone who has interest in the estate. So ultimately, you know, because an estate is money. So anyone who has interest in that ultimately can uh, petition the court. So those are the, uh, the top uh, categories. Is it a good idea to probate an asset when it's not necessary? Yes. Sometimes you might want to do it because uh, ultimately you might want to avoid capital gains tax. So, um, you know, sometimes it is better to go through that probate process and maybe probate that house because when mom and dad bought it uh, back in, you know, 1950, it was worth I don't know, $20,000, um, and now it's worth $120,000, so there's a $100,000 capital gains tax that could be 15 to 20% depending on your tax bracket, um, you know, so why not probate it, you know, uh, step up the basis to the data debt value, which is 100, you know, let's say 120, um, and then, you know, you will pay a probate fee on that 120, let's say, um, but a probate fee of less than 1% is a lot better than, you know, 15 or 20% capital gains tax. So there are different ways to absolutely, um, you might want to think about probating. And that's, you know, that's, I think, when it's beneficial to sit down with, you know, an attorney and uh, go over all the assets that the decedent had to see, you know, what you might want to do. Assets and how about credits? Most people have some kind of outstanding debt when they die. How do you handle creditor claims? Um, yeah, I w definitely wanted to touch on this. So, you know, in a large estate, uh, the reason why it takes so long, the nine months to a year, is creditors have 150 days to file a claim against the estate. Uh, so that's te technically five months, you know. So when someone is appointed, uh, a notice goes out in the paper. Uh, but usually credit card companies get wind of, you know, that someone passed away. Um, you know, credit cards close. So um, Back me up on that they get wind that someone passed away. I, Wouldn't it be the executor or executrix's job to notify the credit card company? Why do we have to wait for them to contact us? Sometimes you might not want to notify them because... Because there's a big debt. Because there's a debt and why, you know, maybe we won't we won't want to have, you know, a creditor claim. So if they miss the boat, that's on them. It's ultimately also their responsibility. Um, um, so... You, you know what I'd be afraid of that, though? Mm. Accrued interest. That you, you don't you don't pay that off, and next thing you know, it's going to be ten times as much. Yeah, but usually that you can kind of fight off, you know, that the interest should have stopped, you know, at the date of that. So there's, you know, definitely some caveats to that. Uh, but you know, just some important things that when there's, uh, you know, when a decedent has, you know creditor claims or anything that's due and owing, the estate is responsible for that. So not the person who's, you know, not the children, not the spouse. So if anything was joint, you know, you technically do not need to use that money to pay off any uh, of the claims. Um, and other thing I want to touch on is what about if there's not enough money? You know, exactly. There's an estate. There's, let's say, just 
I'll just use a number $50,000 between, you know, paying off funeral costs, you know, attorney fees, probate fee, uh, maybe some uh, certain, there's a hierarchy what gets paid. So you pay all that. And then after that, there's not enough money to pay maybe that credit card. Guess what? You might be filing for an insolvent estate. Uh, so that's another process. Or let's say you pay off all the things that you need to pay and creditor claims are at the bottom. That's the last thing that gets paid. Um, and let's say there's a circumstance that there's only $10,000 left, okay? Uh, but the creditor claims total $20,000. At that point, you petition the court and it kind of is retroactive or we prorate what everyone gets. So maybe that Bank of America credit card, instead of getting that $2,000, they will only get $1,000 and that settles the debt. So there's different ways you can do insolvent or basically, you know, kind of pro, uh, uh, prorating uh, what is due and owing. If the credit card company or some other creditor discovers that the estate doesn't have enough money to pay it off. Do they still go hardball on it, or do they kind of realize this is a dead end, we're not going to waste time on this? For the most part, no. You know, like I said, if when it comes to the point when if they file a claim and, you know, let's say the estate is insolvent or doesn't have any little money, they get notice. So they get notice as to, you know, what is in the estate. And, if, you know, if there's no money, ultimately this is, is what it is, um, um, they, you know, they have the opportunity to petition the court with, no, I want everything. So they have notice because when it's insolvent, they can come to the hearing because there is a hearing for an insolvent estate and the judge, you know, says, okay, there's no money, no one's getting anything or you're only getting $1,000. If you have an issue with that, you need to petition the court. So they have an opportunity. If they don't meet that opportunity, that's it. They can't, you know, go after you. With a standard estate settlement, if you go through probate, does that make the entire start-to-finish process go faster or slower? I don't understand the question. Well, in other words, somebody dies, mm -hmm. and person A doesn't go through probate. Mm -hmm. How long will it take to settle that estate on average? And if person B does go through probate, how long does that take? Does, does probate stretch it out, or does it make it go faster? Well, ultimately, you need probate to you know, close out that solely owned bank account or, um, you know, anything that's solely in that decedent's name, you will need probate to take those funds out. So, like I said, you know, uh, a typical probate, a large estate over 40K, you know, it roughly takes nine months to a year. The court likes it to be done within the year. But there are some circumstances, like, like I, you know, a great example is a house, selling of a house. Sometimes you need the house to sell. You need, that's, that could be the only liquid asset. But guess what? That's a large liquid asset for the most part. And you need that to sell. And as you know, when people certain, when people certain die, the best time sometimes to sell a house is the spring, summer. So, you know, there's a wait process, you know, cleaning out the house. There's so many levels um, that go through it that can take longer than a year and um, when you get to that year mark you just kind of have to tell the court hey this is what's going on we're in the process of selling the house you know the estate will close soon because they just want a status look it's been a year where do you stand uh, but if someone who you know ultimately needs to probate and they don't and they you know wait it just it just it does prolong the process because as time goes by, they might not know everything. Uh, things might pop up later down the line where you have, might have to reopen an estate, which is more hassle. So, for the most part, try to do it when you know when once you know 
you have the part where everything is settled in regards to the grieving, everything's finalized. You know, once you're in a clear state, I would definitely suggest, you know, contact an attorney to um, discuss, you know, the decedent's potentially will or no will and what should be done. And the attorneys of the Prue Law Group at 720 Main Street, Wilmanic, great places to start planning your estate or making adjustments as necessary, and they'll tell you all about probate as well, questions that we may or may not have gotten to in these two programs with world traveler Evelina Ruskowski. <laughs> so what are your what are your favorite travel sites, uh, especially overseas? Overseas. So I've been to France. I've been to Ireland. Of course, I've been to Poland because that's where I'm from. Um, I've been to uh, the U.K., um, I will have to say my favorite thus far probably was Ireland. Um, absolutely beautiful. Uh, me and my husband went before we got married. Um, and it was, you know, we took, I think it was a, a week's vacation, but we rented a car, went from, you know, we were in Dublin, uh, went all the way down to Cork, um, went down to the cliffs. So it was, uh, it was just absolutely beautiful. Um, and it's something it's definitely where I want to go back. So my uh, my husband is you know half you know well he's he thinks he's half Irish. I think he's just a quarter Irish, but he's very proud of his um, heritage from there. So ultimately, you know, definitely I want to take the kids there. Um, but also, and you know, Poland is also my favorite because that's that's where I'm from. That those are my roots. So. The cliffs you talked about. There's the cliffs of Moher, which by the way were my favorite part of mm -hmm. Ireland as well. You mentioned France. Where in France, and what was your uh, favorite thing about that? Um, I've been to France actually twice. So once I went with when I was in high school, um, it was like a not a study abroad, but it was like a um, with my French class. We went for two weeks. Uh, first week we stayed with a French family. For the first week we were French family, and the second week we traveled with the class. Um, and that, for the most part, was major. Um, you know Paris, just the major uh, things that you know what Paris, if, if France is known for. Second time, my dad has a cousin there. Um, and I went from Paris to Nice, down towards the north, where the water is just absolutely stunning. Um, and, you know, I did go to Italy, um, where I don't know, <laughs> but it was, it was just absolutely beautiful. And then you said you're from Poland. Uh, if I were to go to Poland, mm -hmm. give me job one. What should I not miss in Poland? It's actually a lot you shouldn't miss in Poland. You know, it's, it's funny because... I take it for granted sometimes, but when I went back and I can't wait to go back and, you know, show the kids when they get a little bit older, but just the history is just absolutely amazing. Like Warsaw, you know, um, is absolutely beautiful. Krakow, um, um, Celts is, is stunning. So I really can't pinpoint one, but, you know, if you're a huge history buff, I would say Krakow and Warsaw, you know, definitely at the top of the list. Probate and world travel <laughs> with attorney of Evelina Roskowski from the Prue Law Group at 720 Main Street, Willimantic. Evelina, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me. 14 WILI Willimantic. We're also on 95.3 FM.